Love what you hear? Be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, and even our D&D adventure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Derek Baker. And today we are going to be talking about a cult classic, a game that started as a Kickstarter, got a pretty good backing, and then just snowballed out of nowhere. And it really hits you right in the feels for a lot of the game. It gets you rolling in, and it tests that method in turn-based style games is do I kill this opponent or am I showing a little mercy? Yeah, Undertale obviously inspired by old school RPGs, but it wanted to subvert as many expectations as it could compared to some of those classic games. And as a result, there are a lot of people that really love this game. I think there's a lot of people out there who grew up kind of with this game. And so Mm -hmm. it's a big nostalgia game for a lot of people. And with that subversion, I mean, you've had a lot of games take that homagerie, even from this game, or the style of it, or the Earthbound style, which is a lot of where it gets its legs from, like Omari is is another one that takes that sampling pack, even in the idea of music, even in the idea of just narrative storytelling, it has those little methods with it. And we do see a lot of games nowadays that are like, I want to be the next Undertale. I want to be the next game that, you know, reinvents the wheel that spins a bit of comedy along with a bit of tragedy into this and creates these beloved characters that even though they don't have a traditional speaking role or you know or a voice actor or actress it's those little beeps and bloops and the way the character works that really brings it to life and this game came out in a time where you know, we've got these Kickstarters going on. We've got more interest in indie games. So I feel like it's, I don't want to quite say that it's like a pioneer for indie games necessarily. I think maybe that's going too far, but it's definitely in this era where now that people have the technology, um, they Mm -hmm. can kind of create, you know, like a Stardew Valley game, you know, people can build these games out specifically the way that they want to um, without a ton of support from any major developers just through Kickstarter in the community. So it's really cool. And I think that's exactly it. I would say this is kind of the second wave of indie devs because, I mean, obviously you had like Super Meat Boy, Fez, Braid really set the stage and showcase how much sacrifice was made in an era for like, you know, one person or two people to create a game when there wasn't that many assets and there wasn't that much resources for these people that are taking mortgages out, triple mortgages out in their house. They're like, if this fails, I'm gone. You know, if this fails, we're bankrupt. And now we're seeing it where 
one person create this game and do 95% of it, including the music, the animations, the text, the storytelling, and combine all that together and really make an interesting piece of content that's just so much fun to play for a lot of people. Absolutely, man. Let's get into it. Undertale is a 2D role-playing video game created by indie developer Toby Fox. The player controls a child named Frisk who has fallen into the underground, a large secluded region under the surface of the earth, separated by a magic barrier. The player meets various monsters during the journey back to the surface. Some monsters might engage the player in a fight, and if the player chooses to battle the monsters, they control a heart which represents their soul. They must avoid attacks by the monster in the style of a bullet hell shooter. When the player attacks the monster and brings them down to low HP, they could choose to slay it or spare it. Enemy attacks will also change depending on how violent the player is, as will their dialogue. Boss dialogue will also change based on the player's previous playthroughs. Undertale's monsters are all unique with their own personality, dialogue, and fighting style. Some monsters are hostile, while others are passive. The player must look at every new encounter as a new experience and figure out how to befriend the monsters if they choose to do so. Undertale was released on September 15, 2015, originally for Windows and Mac. The game was acclaimed for its thematic material, intuitive combat system, musical score, originality, story, dialogue, and characters. The game sold over 1 million copies and was nominated for multiple accolades and awards. Several gaming publications and conventions listed Undertale as Game of the Year. The first chapter of a related game, Deltarune, was released in October 2018, with the second being released in September 2021. And again, as we had talked about this kind of homage to a lot of games, but this nuanced ability that really Toby Fox and Undertale brought was combining so many different elements of gaming in that idea of bullet hell, which if you don't know, that's like your reminiscent kind of star shooters where there's like bullets flying across the screen. You got to shoot down ships. It's, it's just wild. And that's what this kind of does in these mini games because every boss and every enemy is different. So you have to play these little mini games as you do these fights, kind of making it a, a Final Fantasy meets, you know, Geometry Wars in, in, in a way to kind of start it out. And people love it. So in an interview with Medium, Toby Fox states, quote, Two of the reasons I wanted to make Undertale was to express myself and prove my own abilities. However, working by yourself, you're limited by your own abilities. And it's true. You know, he did as much as he could, brought in some artists for a couple other things, but that's the reality of it. You don't have ideas to bounce off people. You can't take coding knowledge from others. You can definitely, you know, ask for help, but it's not in the gaming process. So a little bit about Toby Fox and kind of where he came from. In 2000, Fox and his brothers would spend time creating role-playing games together on RPG Maker, which originally was a Japanese-only release that gave you the assets to help build these games up, eventually came to the U.S., but they were working on some little pirated copies and learning how to use the program and create games together. A composer by trade, Fox created a variety of music for Andrew Hussey's popular online interactive comic, Homestuck, a comic centered on a group of teens who, unwittingly, bring about the end of the world through the installation of a beta copy of an upcoming computer game. As, as, we, as we all do, as we've all like, you know, gone through LimeWire or Pirate Bay on occasion and, and found some things that probably brought about the end of the world in no some realm. No comment. No <laughs> and he did all of this actually during his senior year of high school. 
Though he did not initially respond when Hussey began the search for a music contribution team in April 2009, Hussey took note of Fox's work when he uploaded piano covers of the webcomics music on the Microsoft Paint Adventures forums. Man, back in the day when forums were all the rage. Fox was heavily inspired by Earthbound, playing it when he was only four years old. He also credits the game for helping him learn how to read, very much like that's Pokemon for me. That's Pokemon for me as well. You think I was spelling Earthquake without Pokemon? No way. Ooh. No, no. You, you got you to learn from there. Guillotine? Oh, oh I, guillotine. Knew it, early, knew it early on. He would visit Earthbound fan site Starmen.net often posting content for the site and building Earthbound ROM hacks while still in high school. Coincidentally, some of the early Starman.net users now run Fangamer, a gaming merchandise site that sells many physical game exclusives, including the collector's edition of Undertale. Fox would become known within the community for these ROM hacks, specifically his Halloween hack that he entered into a competition. In this hack, you play as Varric from the Brandish series as you're sent back in time to defeat Dr. Gigas. In 2012, Fox was attending his third year at college, working on a battle system in Game Maker Studio, which would inspire the combat system for Undertale. The inspiration for befriending bosses came when Fox hit the random button on Wikipedia. said, one day I randomly read about arrays and realized I could program a text system using them. So I decided to make a battle system using that text system, which in turn gave me many ideas for a game. Then I decided to make a demo of that game to see if people liked it and if it was humanly possible to create. Undertale originally started as development for Underbound 2, the sequel to a ROM hack of Earthbound. This came from a comment Fox left on a forum on Starman.net, jokingly stating that he would be working on Underbound 2. So, you know, being that prankster and, and really running a lot of that Starman.net and, and very much like Discord is nowadays, where you have a lot of your regular users, that's very much what forms were back in the day. You kind of like were known around it, especially if you created something in that specificity of that site, whether it was forum posts or like this, you know, doing different ROM hacks and being a part of that. You know, he definitely made a name for himself in that kind of underground earthbound community. And that's really where it started out, because before development of the game even started, Fox was thinking like, listen, I've played a lot of these games out there. I've played your Earthbound. I've played your Legend of Zelda. I've played your Final Fantasy. And in them, those fights end when the opponent's HP reaches zero, or you all reach zero and Pokemon white out. You know, so what can we change up with that? So he decided that you can spare the monsters rather than kill them. He would make this route harder, though since he felt that the good path in most games was easier. So avoiding conflict, avoiding any of the combat, he wanted to be like, okay, this is a way you can play, but those hostile creatures, they'll still be hostile to you for a while until you use like these silly moves, you know, like compliment or, or other ones they added into the game that are non-lethal, but sway that monster or being to your side. The combat system was inspired by Shin Megami Tensei, a post-apocalyptic RPG released in 1992. Most notably, it influenced the gameplay mechanic that allowed players to talk to monsters to avoid conflict. Fox intended to expand upon this mechanic as failing to negotiate resulted in a requirement to fight. He stated, quote, I want to create a system that satisfied my urge for talking to monsters. When he began developing the mechanic, the concept of completing the game without killing any enemies, quote, just evolved naturally. However, 
he never considered removing the option to fight throughout development. When questioned on the difficulty of playing the game without killing, Fox responded that it is, quote, the crux of one of the major themes of this game and needs to stay in it, asking players to think about it themselves. Despite not having played it, Fox was inspired by the concept of Moon Remix RPG Adventure, which involved the player repairing the damage of the hero and increasing their love level by helping people instead of hurting them. Fox felt like every RPG simply had the player killing monsters, playing as a hero with no questions asked. When it came to Undertale's monsters, he wanted each to be a unique individual rather than just something the player fought to progress. For instance, some monsters didn't even want to fight and would rather eat the player's food or ask how the player felt about their appearance. The defensive segment within the battle system was inspired by the Mario and Luigi series as well as bullet hell shooters such as Toho Project. When working on the battle system, Fox set out to create a mechanic that he would personally enjoy. He wanted Undertale to have a battle system equally engaging as Super Mario RPG and Mario and Luigi Superstar Saga. Fox did not want grinding to be necessary at any point in the game, instead leaving it optional to players. He also didn't wish to introduce fetch quests, as they involve backtracking, which he dislikes. In terms of the game's difficulty, Fox ensured that it was easy and enjoyable. He asked some friends who are inexperienced with bullet hell shooters to test the game, and found that they were able to complete it. Fox felt the game's difficulty was optimal, particularly considering the complications involved in adding another difficulty setting. Yeah, two things with that. One, the difficulty setting. I mean, that's a whole nother set of programming you're going to have to do of like, all right, now we got to up either the damage output they do, the life, the longevity of what you have to do to earn their trust. And knowing Fox and like what he put in, he probably just would have crafted an entire another game where there's all different dialogue for that harder option. Like there's harder things you have to do instead of just bumping up numbers. So it makes sense. And it's not meant to be the Dark Souls of side scrollers. You know, it's meant to be this enjoyable game that, you know, takes that turn-based RPG and kind of flips it on its head. And what can you do with it? You know, and the other thing going about with that is the idea of fetch quests with most games using them, in my opinion, as kind of the lazy man's way of game filler. Like, hey, you need to go talk to Quilby and pick up a map. And then Quilby doesn't have the map, but they need some soda. And it's like that whole chain of like, if you give a mouse a cookie type thing, and it's just backtracking to keep players in the same area to reuse those same assets and make the game longer. Does it work for some games? Sure. But there's plenty where you're like, I don't want to do any of that. Yeah, I think that it works relatively well when you have a particular map that you need an area closed off just for the time being, for whatever reason. I think back to Pokemon Red, Blue, Yellow, where you have to give the police officer or the guard something to drink in order to get into that city. They wanted you to be able to get to a certain point in the game before you went into that city so you didn't just get absolutely destroyed by your opponents. And so when, it, when it's a fetch quest in that sense, I feel like it works well. But it is really frustrating when you go into a town, you know that there's someone in a random building that is just there sitting at a bar or something, and you talk to them, and they say, hey, I really wish I had this. Keep an eye out for me. And then you got to go back three cities just to get that thing to bring it back to them just for like a minimal reward those games i definitely agree when they do it that way it's just very much lazy to me 
it's game filler and it's trying to tell some narratives in between. I know like Fable and a couple other games have even done like love letter fetch quests where you got to like bring letters back and forth between certain people in certain towns to do things. And if it's for a substantial reward, like we're saying, like you get the super duper boomerang for this. And it's kind of like a hidden thing. If you do like 20 of these fetch quests in a row, sure, that's an interesting thing. But when it's just a game filler of just like doing that thing, it's, it's very much like escort missions to me. Oof, Ooh. just let me play the game. I don't want to walk at a pace because it, it just doesn't hit it for me. Right. But let's get back. Let's talk about the combat system and, and how Fox came about with it. So Fox, honestly, never referenced any one game for the combat designs. Rather, he would regularly play the game and adjust it until the counters felt challenging, but fair. Wanted to make sure like when you encounter something, it's not just like a cakewalk. You don't just walk in, you know, like easy peasy. I just hit left, left, right, boom, done. He wanted to make it interesting, but also fun. He wanted the game to not only be turn-based, but to have those bullet hell sequences. So having those two elements of the mini game within the mini game. And as we had said, he would recruit some of his friends to test out that bullet hell and see where they would be. And honestly, they didn't have much issues beating it. So he knew he was on the right path. And he knows that some of those sections can be difficult, but he kind of like explained it this way too of like, okay, so I know you want this for the narrative. Get that friend that is very good at video games and they'll do the combat sequence and then you'll do the exploring and the talking and like the questing stuff for it. And it's like a twofer game. You know how it'd be. I <laughs> have to imagine that must have been how he and his brothers played games when they were kids mm-hmm. to, to have that mentality and being okay with that. I, my, myself, I'm a prideful gamer. I'm a prideful oh. man. Ain't no one beating this combat for me. But <laughs> hey, you know, if that's you, that's fine too. Yeah, I mean, it's very much, I know my younger sisters, when they started playing, it was very much that. They could play a lot of it, but you'd have to like beat the hard sequence form or doing something like that. So, hey, you know what? Relationship building. That's what it's in there for. And that's what we'll say. Friendship. Increase the love level. Yeah. Increase your real life love level. Ka-ching. <laughs> so <laughs> Fox needed an artist. So he reached out to Temi Chang via her blog and asked for help. Fox has stated that even though they didn't know each other, she said yes. And it honestly changed his future and the future of the game. The Temi species in the game is actually a sketch from artist Betty Kwong based on what she felt Chang looked like. The annoying dog in the game is also a representation of Fox himself. And so the overall look of the main character is extremely simplistic, with limited to no dialogue, as Fox wanted the player to project themselves as the main character of the game. Very much a la Legend of Zelda and Link, that really has no speaking roles and only ends up getting some grunts and some ooh The mother in the game is supposed to actually act like a mother. Fox felt that like in games like Pokemon, Mother, and Earthbound, the mothers, only acted as symbols rather than true characters and wanted as something different. So I actually wanted that motherly figure. And we even get that in a lot of other games coming out nowadays, whether it's a visual novel or whether it's a couple of the things like these check-ins from mom to have that grounding character versus just, oh, sweetie, you're leaving. Here's some skates. Oh, sweetie, you're leaving. Go talk to the professor. Yeah. You know, just being that one character that you see and actually being a representation in the game. Like when you think about Pokemon in particular, the difference between the red, blue, yellow mom and the sword and shield mom. I mean, the sword and shield mom is very much more involved, constantly mm-hmm. like checking in, reminding you about things, at least at the beginning of the game. Even going to like gold, silver, crystal, you had the mom calling you on occasion. Yes. So there were games that started to expand upon that a little bit, but I think that he's right. It's just kind of a mom 
you say goodbye. I'm going off on an adventure. Never going to see you again. Yep. So according to Fox, the idea of being trapped in an underground world was inspired by the video game Brandish. Fox was also partly influenced by the silliness of internet culture as well as comedy shows like Mr. Bean. And he was also inspired by the unsettling atmosphere in Earthbound. This all sort of culminated together and led to a desire to subvert concepts that go unquestioned in many games. He found that the writing became easier after establishing a character's voice and mood, and also felt that creating the world was a natural process, as it expressed the stories of those within it. Fox felt an importance to make the game's monsters feel like an individual, and he cited the Final Fantasy series as the opposite. Quote, All monsters in RPGs like Final Fantasy are the same. There's no meaning to that. Yep. I mean, that sounds about right. Most of what you fight in there is like unnamed rat, unnamed ogre, unnamed, you know, whatever series you're playing in is just a very unnamed ABC character. And you do it a lot. It's like rat A, rat B, rat C that you're fighting. Whereas in this, he wanted to make sure even if you're just like at the beginning fighting the frog, which is one of the first random encounters you can get, it's still a character that like you feel for. The bullet hell game is its own game. And that's a starter character. It's like one of the first ones you run into. So even at the start of it, he wanted that to happen. And when you go through and fight like many, many bosses, many bosses and bosses, he wanted to make sure that the narrative plays out. You at least have a reason for talking, interacting or fighting that thing. And it does. It subverts that culture from just, you know, XP farming on, you know, like the boars outside of in World of Warcraft. You know, it's those things of like actually playing the game. You can grind if you want, but you're going through seeing those new enemies and seeing those other aspects. And you do see a huge, you know, earthbound feeling to the whole game, even just the way that the characters move, the characters are built. And you know that that's kind of the basis he started with and then continued on with. So basically, this game was the anti-Quest 64. It was the anti-Quest 64, exactly. (laughs) The character of Toriel who is one of the first to appear in the game, was created as a parody of tutorial characters. Fox strongly disliked the use of the companion character Fee in The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword, Shots Fired, Fox, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in which the answers to puzzles were often revealed early. Toriel ultimately leads to the player's first to-kill-or-not-to-kill decision, and if she's spared, the player must defeat her many times while if she's killed, the player is labeled a mistake by the adoptive mother. So Toriel is the motherly figure in the game. And when you do that initial fight, she's trying to get you to avoid danger. She's mm-hmm. trying to prevent you from going out on this mission. And so the defeat is basically just trying to overpower her will. Whereas if you decide to take the easy quick thing and kill her, She's like, I should have never raised you. This was a mistake. All these people were right to hate humans. And so it's interesting. You see right away that, yeah, this game is going to be different, even in this tutorial battle. And, and I love that Fox brings her you know, back to do these things to basically take care of you through these battles. And that's like her way of doing it. And you know, as a player, you might see it as like, oh, maybe I do have to defeat her because she's coming back. Not knowing that like, you need to kind of like go down one or two or three of these rows. Cause we'll talk about that. The game does have multiple ending based on how many or all of the enemies that you kill or how many that you save. And, and a lot of different players who've played the game 
think of one of those endings as like the true one. Like that's how you have to play the game. It's the true ending you have to get. Otherwise, all the other endings are false. That's how it goes for a lot of those games like that, right? Mm -hmm. Think of like a Red Dead 2 ending. You have the true ending. You have those other ones. Even games like uh, The Force Unleashed, there's the true ending, and then there's the alternate ending. So definitely a, a very common theme within games with multiple endings. Now, let's talk about a couple other popular characters, Papyrus and Sans. And they're actually named after typeface fonts, Papyrus and Comic Sans. And their in-game dialogue is displayed accordingly in those respective fonts. Both characters are listed in the game's credits as being inspired by J.N. Weedle, author of Helvetica, a webcomic series about a skeleton named after the font of the same name. Papyrus was originally conceived as a sketch in Fox's notebook. It was first a mean-spirited character named Times New Roman and wore a fedora. And here's the thing. If there's ever a font, to be mean-spirited and wear a fedora, it's TNR right there. Well, Times New Roman, a little, little abbreviation for you. I will not accept Times New Roman slander. I will accept it all day long because that's what all my papers were written in. <laughs> <laughs> so as most of you might know or not know, uh, we mentioned at the top of the show, but this was a Kickstarter game. I'll give you a quick background on Kickstarter if you don't know. It is a crowdfunding site where basically you pay a certain amount of money. There's tier-based. So if you know Patreon or any of those other money, money websites, you pay a tier, you get a reward at the end of the period that they set up for the Kickstarter. So it could be 30 days, 45 days, 10 days, whatever it is, and they have a dollar goal to hit. Can we start calling all these websites money, money websites? I like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So, so in June 2013, he would go to a money, money website. So... <laughs> No, so in June 2013, a demo for the game was completed and released to the public. Fox would start a Kickstarter slash Money Money campaign to continue (laughs) development with the description of, quote, a traditional role-playing game where no one has to get hurt. Fox asked for $5,000 to develop the game, but by the time the Kickstarter ended, over $51,000 from almost 2,500 backers had been donated. That's 5,000 money monies or 51,000 money monies. Exactly. And that's, that's exactly where we are. On Kickstarter, a rough release date was set for summer 2014, but as most Kickstarters go, the target date would not be hit. Undertale was delayed until September 15th, 2015. Most fans were pretty understanding of the delay and wanted Fox to have the time to produce the best game possible. Now, the campaign had several donation tiers, one of which was allowing players to create monsters in the game. Three of these monsters were Glide, Muffet, and So Sorry. The inclusion of So Sorry would lead to some controversy due to some of the Kickstarter backers' previous artwork feature on DeviantArt, which included some fetish projects. Fox would have to publicly ask his fan base to stop bullying him due to the inclusion of this character, and we'll learn a bit more that the fan base can be a good old acid rain of toxicity that flows and flows through the game. Fox programmed some anti-spoiler features in the game, and if one were to dive into the game's code, find character sprites, they would be met with a message from Fox asking the hackers to not publish the sprites online since he wanted the player's first experience of them to be in the game itself. Additionally, there is an audio file asking the player not to spoil the game. Due to the building expectations for Undertale, Fox grew concerned about the amount of attention he would receive from the game and attention Undertale would get itself. Because so much of Undertale involves subverting standard RPG expectations, 
Fox contacted several Let's Play content creators and asked if they would push back publishing their playthroughs since viewers would discover spoilers in the game. By the time Undertale was complete, Fox was only 23 years old, and after its release he continued to make improvements such as fixing bugs, changing the color of blue attacks to be more visible to those who are colorblind. And he continued to do these things as the game would release, not only on the computer, but would come to consoles, and he would keep adding to it. And as he continued to produce ideas for Deltarune, which is his next kind of game idea coming up that is based in the realm of Undertale, but it is not Undertale. Let's move to marketing. And as we said on a lot of the games we've covered, wasn't much of a marketing budget. And, and most of that marketing was word of mouth, if not the start at that Kickstarter. With Kickstarter, he already has, you know, 2,500 people pledging to play it. So he's already got an audience built around it with the hype of them, you know, going friend to friend. Hey, this is great. And not only that, the game releases, publications pick it up, Let's Play channels, as Derek had said, would still publish it. But this allows a lot of people to get that exposure. And so at E3 2017, Sony announced that Undertale was coming to the PlayStation 4 and PS Vita and was also going to be localized for the Japanese market, including a physical release. Once localized, there was discussion revolving around Sans, who referred to himself using the word Oria. Typically, city-dwelling Japanese residents don't refer to themselves as Oira. Oira? Listen, Japanese people or people who played this game. <laughs> just tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> but anyway, they would, they would not refer to themselves that because as older, more rural residents do. In Japanese culture and many cultures, there's various terms for what to call people. Like, let's just say in English, sir, madam, master, w whatever it is. There's variations in other cultures. In response, Oira started trending on Twitter and fan art would quickly spread across the platform of Sans represented as a rural grandfather. It is believed Fox chose to use the word Oria, understanding exactly what it meant. Mm, possibly. But then I'd also go with Dirk, that story too. Yeah, that's what I would say if I made the game. Oh, I know all about that. <laughs> and lastly, during a Nintendo Direct in 2018, it was announced that Undertale was coming to the Nintendo Switch. And there's other varieties I want to touch later in this episode where we've seen Sans's costume in Smash Bros. We've seen other people portray them. Not only that, the thousands and thousands of pages of fan art of the various characters on DeviantArt and other publications that have just exploded. And if we want to consider that word of mouth, it exploded the game up and has continued to explode the game up as Deltarune is slowly drip feeding to the public. There is a lot of art for this game. Mm -hmm. A lot. It's really impressive. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, trying to find and sift through official and non-official art for our episode covers, because I don't want to ever steal stuff from creators out there. I want to use the official artwork or screenshots. It's tough. And I'm just like, I just need, I just need something official. Yeah. So let's talk more about the gameplay. Undertale, of course, is a role-playing game that uses a top-down perspective. In the game, the player controls a child and completes objectives to progress through the story. Players explore an underground world filled with towns and caves and are required to solve numerous puzzles on their journey. The underground world is the home of monsters, many of whom challenge the player in combat and the player decides whether to kill, flee, or befriend them. Choices made by the player radically affect the plot and general progression of the game, with the player's morality acting as the cornerstone for the game's development. When players encounter enemies in either scripted events or random encounters, they enter a battle mode. 
During battles, players control a small heart which represents their soul and must avoid attacks unleashed by the opposing monsters similar to a bullet hell shooter. As the game progresses, new elements are introduced such as colored obstacles and boss battles which change the way players control the heart. Players may choose to attack the enemy which involves time button presses. Killing enemies will cause the player to earn EXP, in turn increasing their love and gold. They can use the ACT option to check an enemy's attacking and defending attributes as well as perform various other actions which vary depending on the enemy. If the player uses the right actions to respond to the enemy or attacks them until they have low HP but are still alive, they can choose to spare them and end the fight without killing them. For some boss encounters to be completed peacefully, the player is required to survive until the character they are facing has finished their dialogue. The game features multiple story branches and endings depending on whether players choose to kill or spare their enemies, and as such, it is possible to clear the game without killing a single enemy, or as the community would call it, the true ending. And the one big thing about this that also subverted a lot of expectations is, let's say, Fire Emblem, for example. In Fire Emblem, I usually play, on the older ones it wasn't a choice, and the newer ones it is, you can have permadeath, where if a character dies in one of your missions, they're dead. They're gone. So, being young me, I'd reset my game several times to get it going. Well, the way that Undertale is programmed is that even if you backtrack or delete your save file, the game remembers what you did. So, if you killed that person on accident or on purpose, just to see, the game knows it and it keeps that in, which is such an interesting element that like forces you to beat the game and go through it that way. And then, again, those bosses remember what you did to them in your future playthroughs. So it makes it really interesting to, one, play through this multiple times to see, but also that him using those branching path dialogues is such a cool idea. It's just if this, then that's of, did they kill you this last time? Okay, say this. If they didn't, do this. So smart. And it just allows you to enhance that replayability and make people want to come back to it. And I really appreciate that he did that because there are so many games out there that advertise themselves as games that have consequences to your actions. But when you get to the end, that's really just not the case anymore. This game has consequences, not only in that campaign, but then when you go and play the game again, it still has the same consequences. So there's an actual true consequence to everything that you do in this one. And I think that makes it a lot of fun. Great replayability. Monsters will talk to the player during the battle, and the game will tell the players what the monster's feelings and actions are. Enemy attacks change based on how players interact with them. Should players choose non-violent options, enemy attacks are easy, whereas they become difficult if players choose violent options. The game relies on a number of metafictional elements in both its gameplay and story, and when players participate in a boss battle on a second playthrough, as we said, the dialogue will be altered depending on actions in previous playthroughs. Again, you want to make some replayability, and you want to like code it pretty easily, this is an element that can work for you. So if you're a game maker out there and you want to do things like this, branching paths are not that hard to code in and it makes it fun for the player to come back to. You know, we even see that in a lot of other games where like you've beaten the game in some way. Let's talk about Hades. In Hades, as you beat certain bosses, because you have your four bosses or so that you have to go through, those will change. The dialogue will change each time just because you've beat them or you've been there. And it's cool to see how that works in gaming to keep the player involved and keep the player going. And I've even seen just games that do have difficulty options change 
the dialogues and things depending on the difficulty that you choose. And so there are lots of ways to just sort of change up simple things to make the game feel more fun, keep it fresh. Absolutely. Let's jump into the story. Now, don't butcher us. This is our best retelling of the story. Actually, you know what? Hit us up on socials. Get them socials going. I mean... Or Discord. (laughs) We could go down every single path. We could go down every single thing. But this podcast would probably be like 10 hours long. Maybe that's what we do next time. But for this time, let's not. And also, just yell at me for mispronouncing literally everything, because here we go. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Undertale is set in the underground, a realm where monsters were banished after a war broke out with humans. The underground is sealed from the surface by a magic barrier with a singular gap at Mount Ebot. A human child falls into the underground and encounters Flowey a sentient flower who teaches the player the game's mechanics and encourages them to raise their love by gaining experience through killing monsters. When Flowey attempts to kill the human and reap their soul, the human is rescued by Toriel, a motherly goat-like monster who teaches the human to solve puzzles and survive conflict in the underground without killing. She intends to adopt the human, wanting to protect them from Asgore Dremir, the king of the underground. And Flowey is such a great example of just throwing people in there. Of It's like a very happy little flower, like, oh, you're great. You know what? I'm going to devour your soul. And then it goes all crazy, and that's how you start your battle out with it. So human eventually leaves Toriel to search for Asgore's castle, which contains the barrier to the surface world. They encounter several monsters, such as the skeletons Sands and Papyrus, two brothers who act as sentries for the Snowden Forest, Undyne, the head of the Royal Guard, Alphys, the kingdom's royal scientist, and Metaton, a robotic television host Alphys created. Most of them are fought, with the human choosing whether to kill them or to spare and even befriend the monsters. During their travels, the human learns the cause of the war between humans and monsters. Azriel, the son of Asgore and Toriel, befriended the first child who fell into the underground and was adopted by Asgore and Toriel. One day, the child died after eating poisonous flowers. When Azrael returned the body to the humans, they attacked and fatally wounded him, causing Asgore to declare war. Asgore now seeks to break the barrier, which requires him to collect seven human souls, of which he has six. The game's ending depends on how the player handles encounters with monsters. If the player is on their first playthrough without killing, or killed some but not all the monsters, the human arrives at Asgore's castle and learns that a monster's soul is also needed to cross the barrier, forcing them to fight Asgore. Sans stops the human before their confrontation, revealing that the human's love is an acronym for level of violence and EXP for execution points. More subversion. 
Mm-hmm. Sans judges the human based on their accumulated love and EXP. The human fights Asgore, but Flowey interrupts, killing Asgore and stealing the human souls. With the aid of the rebelling souls, the human defeats Flowey, falls unconscious, and awakens on the human side of the barrier. They receive a phone call from Sans, detailing the state of the underground after the human's departure. This ending is known as the neutral ending, and has many different epilogue phone calls depending on which monsters were killed and which ones spared. If the player kills no monsters, they complete the pacifist route. Flowey is revealed to be a reincarnation of Asriel created by Alphys's experiments. Toriel intervenes before the fight with Asgore and is joined by the other monsters the human befriended. Flowey ambushes the group, retaking all the human souls and the souls of all the monsters to take an older Asriel's form to fight the human. The human connects with their friends during the fight, eventually triumphing. Asriel reverts to his child form, destroys the barrier, and expresses thanks to the others before leaving. The human falls unconscious and is awoken to see their friends surrounding them with the knowledge of the human's name, Frisk. The monsters reintegrate with the humans on the surface, while Frisk has the option of accepting Toriel as their adoptive mother. A third ending ensues if the player kills all monsters, known as the No Mercy or Genocide ending. When Frisk reaches Asgore's castle, Sans attempts and fails to stop them. Flowey kills Asgore in an attempt to gain mercy, but is then killed by Frisk. Chara, the fallen child whose body Asriel tried to return, appears and destroys the universe. To enable further replays of the game, Frisk must give their soul to Chara to restore the universe, which will permanently alter all subsequent pacifist runs. So just super interesting, the forethought that, you know, Fox had to add this in there and to be like, okay, so you want to you go through and do like all the murdery runs, then the pacifist run. You're like A lot of people will do that in games. It's like, whoa, 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 wee wah here. We're going to make sure that it's all changed for you and you actually have a different experience altogether. I think it's just amazing that he's able to bring that to it. And it's just such a smart move to do. Again, it's a branching dialogue tree, which is hard to come by with all the dialogue and the ideas of it, but implemented really well. Well, and it's, it's so intense, too, because giving mm-hmm. up the soul to be able to replay the games, you know, to make that ending, and then it's like, okay, well, I'm just going to restart now with nothing. Like, I feel like it really helps with the impacts of the decisions. Yes. I think that if you were able to just go and hit reset and go back, that there wouldn't be any kind of meaningful action. Like, you could just do whatever you wanted. Yeah. And it, it doesn't matter, like you can in most RPGs. So the consistency there is what makes this game interesting. Because mm-hmm. it reminds me of Fable or like the Telltale series where you do have to make decisions. Ultimately, yes, it can affect your outcome, but you can always just restart or just change your decision again. Or, or really, it doesn't affect much. Whereas this is like, no, we have altered the game entirely based on what you've done before. Yeah, I think Telltale is a good example of a game that sort of feigns the impact of most of the decisions. Yes, and later games down the road, especially like the Borderlands series, there are consequences to what you've done, what you've bought, what you've saved throughout it. So there is that. But the very early ones with like Walking Dead, Game of Thrones, Batman, yeah, you had somewhat of a narrative, like you saved A or B, and in the end, they didn't make it anywhere, had any real consequence to what you picked. 
So this kind of subverts that and gets that idea of like, yeah, we're going kind of that route, but guess what? Games permanently altered now. Best of luck. So there was only just a few bits of cut material that we we're going to talk about. And one was if you completed the game as quickly as possible, you could have seen a dog in a bikini. Fox didn't have time to implement this into the game, but you know what? I don't think we're missing much. Yeah, <laughs> I'm fine not seeing that. Yeah. Originally, Toriel would have killed herself after your battle with her. Really dark. And then also the player would have had the option to marry a robot or a robot, however you want to say it. <laughs> Interesting. But nonetheless, I think all those being out of the game definitely helped. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting to have all the thought on Toriel wanting that to be like a real motherly figure. Yeah. For that concept to have originally been like, well, she was just going to kill herself after the fight mm-hmm. regardless. That's, yeah, that's it's, a big swap. It's super dark. So I'm glad it went the way it did because also like, I know a lot of people were very vulnerable when they played this game. And if you're thinking like that as like, yeah, like this is a very motherly figure. I kind of vibe with it. And then that happens. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Yeah. So glad it went the way it did. Now, another aspect that all of you know, Megalovania, but we're going to talk about how he created the music and what went into it, because it's a very interesting soundtrack because it is that very chip toony build to it. That's actually played on a lot of classical instruments, but, but I don't want to say dumbed down, but it is put through synthesizers and it's put through these things to give you that very chip tune experience of it. Um, very much how like Cuphead had their music in the swing era. This was built to be almost that era of Mother, of those other games that, that came out of like Earthbound. So let's jump into it. The Undertale official soundtrack was composed and engineered by Toby Fox. Originally a composer by trade, as we had stated, Fox said numerous times since Undertale's release that the music was his favorite part of the game to make. About 90% of the tracks were created specifically for the game, while others' tracks such as Megalovania and Bone Trousel, sure, were originally made for older video game projects that he was on. Fox composed a soundtrack entirely through the digital audio workstation, FL Studios, or Fruity Loops, for those of us who know it as that or have listened to Epic. For the old heads. Or those who listen to Epic Rap Battles of History. <laughs> he mixed the 8-bit chiptune style of music with mostly free synthesized orchestral instruments that included violins, cellos, electric guitars, and drums called sound fonts. Not only that, Fox sampled games such as Earthbound, Chrono Trigger, Mario Paint, a McDonald's commercial, and even SpongeBob using Patrick for Sans' voice. Every character had a musical theme or leitmotif composed specifically for them, which could then be expanded upon and used in other leitmotifs throughout the game, so very similar to some of the ending tracks being the title track, but actually slowed down. Fox was even so passionate about writing these themes that the coding for the bosses was created after the music was written in order to have the music help shape the gameplay. And so that's really interesting in itself, I've heard of, like, if you ever watch Flight of the Concords, mm-hmm. they made their first season fit around their first album, their first full-length album. And then when they did the second season, they did it the opposite way, and ultimately they decided to stop doing it because they felt like that really put a strain on the music. So it's interesting to see someone take that same concept and apply it to making a video game. I mean, obviously, there was some sort of inspiration that happened from seeing a or hearing a certain 
type of music, whatever he created for this, to to get inspired that way to build a story around it, I think is a true musician's talent. I think that him being a musician by trade, a composer by trade, really adds a unique perspective to how he was able to create this game. And think of all your favorite older games and their soundtracks and how when you hear something like that, it just registers immediately. I always think of the Pokemon soundtrack. Yes, you have your battle theme, but I'm thinking even like in the Team Rocket's hideout or in a cave where it's that pink, 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 you know, and you know exactly that feel and where you are in that. And so many, especially Game Boy games, did that so extremely well. And it's so intoxicating to hear those sounds. And like it brings you back, you know, for you and I, it's a lot of nostalgia for it. But even if you play it today and you play through it, those are so iconic. And that's exactly what he wanted with these things. And that's why he used a lot of these you know, sound fonts, which are basically all of those tones or notes from these different games, or even just, uh, as we said, like different instruments, you could play them on a piano, you could play them through a synthesizer, you can play them in any way to build those out. And if you want to learn a lot more, uh, there's a YouTuber, uh, Toffee Bun, who explains it in greater detail and actually will show it off. He actually builds one of the songs and shows how using these different things in Fruity Loops can change pitch, can change all these different sequences. And he actually compares it to where it is in the game. It's, it's really cool and really well done. And it just showcases how many games as well use these sound libraries from older games to mix and master together or commercials or Patrick Starr or anything like that. It's, it's just really cool to see that that's used in there as an element that builds these songs that all of us know so well or Sans's voice knows so well it's just a Patrick clip shortened. Yeah, I've said it in many, many episodes before. There's just something about people who work in audio. They want to use weird stuff and throw it into the soundtracks. Now, I think this one's a little bit different because it's very audible and in your face. You don't necessarily recognize it, but it's not the same as where we've talked in episodes in the past where some guys brought microphones into the woods and ran around like cavemen. Mm -hmm. It's not quite to that level. But taking advantage of the technology, using MIDI, which is why he was able to plug all these different sounds in, is really interesting. And I find it really interesting that this style of music that originally was just due to data storage issues has now become so iconic that people, even with all the additional space, are searching out those sounds and making new soundtracks just to fit that motif of those original games. So it's cool to see that the impact of those games is so lasting. Yeah, and, and even though these are older sounds they're using, in most of those first games, you could only really play one note at a time. You couldn't really have a lot of underlying notes that would play at the same time, like you said, due to memory storage space. But now that you can compose all of this and use so many different things to build out a full soundtrack, it's amazing. Fox would gain high praise from critics for his music's originality. Or as Jim Sterling put it during his review on The Jimquisition, it is a damn fine collection of unforgettable tunes. Similarly, many hardcore music fans acknowledged the soundtrack as a standout among other video games, with the music taking a step towards the traditional and melodic style of music from the classical period, rather than the heavily harmonic and cinematic soundtracks of modern video games. The Undertale official soundtrack was released on September 15, 2015, through Fox's Bandcamp, the Undertale website, and most other virtual music streaming platforms. 
In late 2016, a vinyl collection of the soundtrack was also released through I Am 8-Bit. The soundtrack contains 101 tracks for a total of 130 minutes and 28 seconds, with tracks 78 through 101 not being present within the game itself. The Undertale Complete Vinyl Soundtrack box set is available on Fangamer.com and includes all 109 tracks curated by Toby Fox and newly remastered for vinyl, filled with beautiful new illustrations by Kaori Takazawa, liner notes by Toby Fox, Alex Rossetti, Kaori Takazawa, and Go Ichinos from Game Freak, and includes a bonus holographic sticker. So it just keeps building on it. We're like 101 tracks. Uh-uh-uh. We got eight more for you in this box set. Like to do a whole 109. And again, going back to that like, hey, this is my favorite thing to do. It shows when you make 109 tracks for your game and each one being individual for characters that needed it. And if you go and watch that YouTuber that Alex mentioned a little bit ago, you'll see how many things actually get adjusted within that software and that it really wasn't just, oh, well, I kind of want this sound and I'm plugging it in and now I'm going to play my MIDI keyboard. It was putting in the sound, adding effects on top of those different packages and really trying to make something truly unique. Oh, yeah. A cult-like following of the game's music would form after the soundtrack's release, with many of the main themes such as Megalovania becoming popular among middle and high school students across the world. In 2016, several tracks from Undertale would go on to be included as DLC for the Japanese game Taiko no Tetsujin, Drum and Fun, as well as Undertale Live, which toured throughout the United States, being performed by the Fifth House Ensemble. For the game's five-year anniversary in May of 2019, a YouTube livestream concert of the fully orchestrated soundtrack was premiered by Music Engine Orchestra in Tokyo, Japan. Let's talk about our release versions. There was a couple that went through, um, one notably being the collector's edition. So obviously we had an online and a standard edition on the PC. We had a collector's edition, which also includes the complete Undertale soundtrack, over 100 songs on two CDs, Undertale sheet music, booklet featuring six songs with annotations by Toby Fox, a 14-karat gold-plated brass music box locket, a sturdy Matchbox-style collector's box, a standard edition of Undertale for either the PS4, the Switch, or PC. And for the Nintendo Switch port, it also includes Game Maker Studio 2, which allows developers to now port their work directly to the Switch architecture. Originally, there were talks of porting the game to the Wii U, but the game would have been recoded from scratch since Game Maker Studio doesn't work well with a lot of Nintendo products. But when the second studio of it, or second edition of it came out, a lot of it started working a little bit better for it. And finally, as I'd said, we had the PS4, the PS Vita, and an Xbox One release. Now I want to talk about Deltarune just a little bit. So for those of you who don't know, this is Toby Fox's latest project, very heavily inspired by Undertale, but not Undertale as he keeps reiterating. And we just had the second chapter of it released. So after previously teasing something Undertale-related a day earlier, Fox released the first chapter of Deltarune on October 31st, 2018, and the second chapter on September 17th, 2021, for Windows and macOS for free. Deltarune is, quote, not the world of Undertale, according to Fox, though characters and settings may bring some of Undertale's world to mind. And it is, quote, intended for people who have completed Undertale, with the name Deltarune, an anagram of Undertale. 
Fox stated that this release is the first part of a new project and considered the release as a survey program to determine how to take the project further. Fox clarified that Deltarune will be a larger project than Undertale, and Fox also stated it took him a few years to create the first chapter of Deltarune, much longer than it took him to complete all of the Undertale demo. Because of the larger scope, he anticipates getting a team to help develop Deltarune and has no anticipated timetable when it will be completed. Once the game is ready, Fox will release the game as one whole package. Fox plans for Deltarune to have only one ending, regardless of choices the player makes in the game. So very interesting to shift from that multiple ending, several endings that can like coincide with each other to like this new one being one finale. As much as I'm glad that he made Undertale in a way to where it has all that extra stuff and we're complementing that concept, I think that it's good that he didn't do it for Deltarune because you don't want to make your games like that game, you mm-hmm. know? You can still have your own little flair on it, but you want Undertale to stand on its own two legs, right? You don't want that game to necessarily be forgotten just because you worked on something that maybe you yourself consider an improvement, but fans might view as just a, a different project altogether. And, and yeah, you, you want to know, like, obviously him making Undertale and having that universe in his head, it's going to be similar, but him reiterating saying, this is not Undertale. It is similar, but it is not Undertale. It's not Undertale 2. It's not a sequel. It's a different game, just inspired by the art style and the music, because that's how I know what to do. It only took three months for the game to sell 500,000 copies on Steam, two months later selling over 1 million copies. The game was nominated for Best RPG amongst titles such as Fallout 4, Bloodborne, and The Witcher 3. Several news outlets such as IGN would award Undertale PC Game of the Year along with a variety of other awards such as Most Fulfilling Crowdfunded Game at the 2016 South by Southwest Gaming Awards, and the game has also earned a 92 out of 100 on Metacritic. In 2016, YouTuber MattPat was invited to Rome with a group of other YouTubers to discuss how the internet can bring us all together. MattPat ended up giving the Pope a digital Steam code for Undertale since he felt that it represents not only the community, but that it aligned with the year of mercy that the Vatican had decreed that year. So obviously a very significant impact for a lot of people. In a poll on GameFAQs, the game earned the title of Best Game Ever, beating Ocarina of Time. And many fans of Ocarina of Time accused Undertale fans of cheating so that the game would win. It went down as probably the most controversial GameFAQs poll. Also, now if you guys voted in that, that's great. Two, who cares? <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, I get the idea and I get the fan base and I get people hating on Undertale. I understand that. Who cares? I feel like Ocarina of Time is such a great game, but for it to be between these two games anyway is already so inconsequential. Like Ocarina of Time was kind of the first one to get that title of this is the best game of all time. And obviously it was a great, amazing game. I love Ocarina of Time, but I feel like because it was kind of the first one to get that title, really, that people almost view it as sacrilege to be like, you know, nah. You can't take it away. It's perfection. Right, exactly. But there's things that change. And, and you know, I know a lot of people cited like, well, Ocarina of Time looks better. And it's like, well, it's not, like a game is not always that. Like, why is Forza not the best game ever? That game looks amazing. Like that game looks so lifelike. 
but it has to do with so many other elements into it and what the fans believe in. So if the fans are voting for it, then yes, it's the best game ever in those fans' eyes. However, the votes go on and whatever, but it's just an interesting element to bring about. Undertale's fan base is known for being rather toxic itself at times. YouTuber Markiplier uploaded videos of himself playing Undertale, then waited 11 months before uploading the third video due to the Undertale fan base criticizing his use of a southern accent to represent Sans and telling him everything he did was wrong. Furthermore, his genocide route annoyed fans and would lead to Markiplier not getting the true ending of the game. The fan base has been well known to criticize and gang up on popular YouTubers if they don't play the game how fans think it should be played. Fox has gone on to tell the fan base to not guide people towards a certain playstyle since it would spoil the game. He's like his whole thing is like, no, just just play it. Figure it out. Like stop having people tell you what to do. Just have fun. When the game was released, a concerned parent called into the 700 Club talk show. She said that she found photos of a skeleton wearing a hoodie on her daughter's phone and asked for advice. On the show, Pat Robertson told her that she should find a video game for her daughter that isn't evil. It's always something like this with some sort of controversy with games. Since Moon was such an inspiration for Fox when creating Undertale, it was time that he finally play it. Undertale gave Moon's creator Yoshiro Kimura the emotional motivation to release a Western port on the Nintendo Switch. Initially, Fox had asked Kimura why he hadn't released the game worldwide, and Kimura told me, like, I just, I couldn't do it. Like, I couldn't get to it. It wasn't something that, like, I could do. But... Like playing Undertale and getting that motivation of like, oh, okay, if, if something like this can do so well and it's so empowering, like, let's do it. Money, money. Yeah, also money, money. Elements of the game have also made their way into pop culture. On October 30th, 2019, wrestler Kenny Omega donned a Sans mask during All Elite Wrestling's Dynamite for his entrance. And Sans has also gone on to become a Mii Fighter costume in the Nintendo's Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. And as we had said, like, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of bit of fan art. Uh, thousands of bit of different little plushies and other things that have come about with this. And we see just so much of the inspiration of the game itself in so many newer titles, not even, you know, more of an homage as, as they have done here, that Legend of Zelda homage. And in reality, Undertale is like the new generation of Legend of Zelda. It's people pulling from that idea of what it's done and doing that turn-based thing. And it's really, it's, it's, it's very popular in pop culture, as some might say. So unfortunately, I think that also means Sans is not going to be this final me fi- or final fighter in Super Smash Brothers Ultimate, unfortunately. It's going to be Papyrus. <laughs> so there was some other Undertale media merchandise that's been released, including toy figurines and plush toys based on characters from the game. Additionally, two official Undertale cover albums have been released. The 2015 metal-slash-electronic album Determination by Richard E.B. and Ace Waters and the 2016 jazz album Live at Grillby's by Carlos Ieni, better known as Insane in the Rain Music. Another album of jazz duets based on Undertale's songs Prescription for Sleep was performed and released in 2016 by saxophonist Narihiko Hibino and pianist Ayaki Sato. Fox describes Undertale as an 8 out of 10 niche RPG game, and refers to the art style as a weird off-brand Charlie Brown game. Fox has also gone on to state that it's absolutely okay to dislike the game. Bullet Hells aren't for everyone, and even some of his friends don't like the game. 
and it's a reality of art. It's a reality of any piece of media that's created. Like, yeah, people aren't going to like it. It's not made for everyone. As he said, it's niche. It's not a game that everyone can pick up and play and enjoy. You got to be in the mood. I've been trying to figure out what the main character reminds me of. And I feel like the profile for like a Charlie Brown cartoon reminds me a lot of this main character's art style. It also, it, to me, it kind of looks like if you took a Simpsons character and had the person who did, as told by Ginger, draw it <laughs> in a Charlie Brown, like, 16-bit style, there you go. That's it. That's, that'll probably be my review as well in the Alex I was about style to say, you, you, basically, you basically stole my review. That's, that's pretty good, though. If, you, if we're getting away from numbers, <laughs> that's a pretty good review right there. Toby Fox has also been quoted as saying, I hope someday a kid who liked Undertale grows up and makes an amazing game. I would be happy to play that. I think we're going to see some stuff like that. Uh, you know, very much so of people in this current era, but a lot of these teenagers, especially having so many tools readily available to make even just RPGs or any game right at your fingertips, I do hope that. Like, I hope everyone makes games and they're fun and I can play them and waste some time. Like, it's it's a cool to see the community build up with that. About a year after release, Fox commented that he was surprised by how popular the game had become, and though appreciative of the attention, he found it stressful. Fox said, quote, It wouldn't surprise me if I never made a game as successful again. That's fine with me, though. I can see that. The pressure on it, very much Flappy Bird-esque, like not knowing, just putting a thing out there and then having all of this attention and news outlets grabbing for you and all this like wildness, and you're just like trying to make a fun game. And like your Kickstarter initially was like 50K, which is insane for like a Kickstarter game. But then like to be a millionaire from it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's wild. Calling Undertale a niche game would be something of an understatement, but an accurate one. Nonetheless, Fox was able to take inspiration from classic RPG titles over the years and turn them into Undertale. He took his years of developing, writing, composing skills and put them to the test and made sure that each and every bit he created really stood out. The story of Undertale can be experienced in multitude of ways, and honestly, as we had said, have some lasting effects. Its charm, story, and unique characters are all some of the factors as to why Undertale has gone on to be one of the most successful indie titles of the decade, if not forever, and better than The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Oh, shots fired again. This game just has it out. For Legend of Zelda doesn't like Skyward Sword. It's beaten Ocarina of Time and all the online polls. Listen, I mean, come on, man. Listen, silent protagonists, we're coming for you. <laughs> but that's it. That's it. That's our coverage of Undertale. So as always, Derek, let us know. Let the people know. Why do we choose this game and what do you think of it? Undertale obviously means a lot to so many people. That's why it has the online support that it does. And while I, you know, going back to the top, it wasn't necessarily the pioneer for indie games. It obviously hit a very particular heartstring for a lot of people. And its unique ability to make decisions impact not only the current story that you're in, the current game that you're in, but also future playthroughs, I feel like is a really, really great concept that more games I wish would utilize. This game for me, I don't think I was in that time period where I needed a game like this necessarily. Sure. You know, it kind of tried to 
do the light mood thing and try to be a little bit of a, a comedy RPG and poke fun at RPGs, I felt like I had already kind of played a game like that in a game called Breath of Death 7, which was an Xbox indie title, where it, it doesn't have the bullet hell shooter curtain style. It's more the classic RPG where you do just do like a turn-based fight, but you make friends along the way. They come with you. They can die. And it's really just meant to poke fun at old RPGs as well. That game came out in 2010. So I kind of felt like I just wasn't ready to get into another game like that. And while this one is a little bit different, I think I just had maybe a little bit of fatigue because not only that, but I play a ton of old games like that still to this day. So where I think that maybe this was good for a certain generation that hadn't grown up playing those kinds of games already, it probably was a lot of fun and a unique new spin for them to, to keep people interested in that sense. It just wasn't necessarily for me. So I'm not going to give it like an official score or anything like that because I, I don't think that I can accurately do that. And people are just going to disagree with me, whatever I say. Because some people think it's probably the best game of all time for real. And, you know, that's fine if you think that. It just, it wasn't that for me necessarily. But I really appreciate what it did. I do think that it has a lot of great concepts. The music is fantastic. 100% agree with all that. And I love that there's YouTube videos out there showing people the process of what it took to make a game soundtrack like this. Because I felt like that analysis was really great. And it's also interesting to see, you know, people out there who love that so much that they're willing to just dive into an, an actual soundtrack. Cause I don't feel like that happens too often. No, I think for the most part, you might have people do covers or like, this isn't supposed to be played on the Glockenspiel type thing. And like, that's their analysis of it. Or they just like, this album was great. Seven out of 10, like did some great things. But as I had said, you know, to actually have an analysis and a breakdown of like, here's how they did it. They sampled this. They sampled this. If you stretch it out like this, if you move the sine wave like this and do this, it's so cool to see that. And you're like, ah, it does sound like that. Like that's, you make it look so easy. And that's what I love. Instead of it being like, oh, it's just so complicated. You can never do it. It's fun to see it like that. And so it's amazing to see where this game has come because it is this next generation of a lot of people's like Legend of Zelda. You know, there's, there's, we hear from everyone. Everyone has developed a game. Like the Legend of Zelda, the OG it, it is such a, I don't know if you call it perfection, but it's such a staple and a base for a lot of games that we hear that everyone has pretty much sampled that. So hopefully, you know, as Toby Fox has said, like other people could sample his ideas that he's had and kind of make something along those lines. And so we see that in just so many games coming out that are trying to be, original or over the top and you could be pretty simplistic with it and make something that's long lasting so if i had to give it a rating i would give it um patrick star plus sans like best friends I actually wanted the conversation with that now fan art get on that um divide that by being betrayed by a cute flower because that's sad adding in that there's a beautiful snowy town that reminds me of christmas top the chart right there 
Um, but then divide in that there's some terrifying clips from a McDonald's ad that makes it seem post-apocalyptic, but very well so on one of the boss fights. You, If you know it, you know it. Um, all out of a little doot-doot-doot-doot-doot-doot-doot-doot. And that is the perfect rendition of Megalovania slowed down to a time signature of 6-4 um, with a BPM of 78. So just so you know, that's, how, that's a true way to, to do it out of 10 audiophiles test that knowledge yes please do research for this episode was done by alex kendall Derek baker with assistance from evan barr and richard scanlon the intro and outro music for this episode was composed and recorded by evan barr as always beautiful people love them also want to thank our patrons uh again our patreon is the way that we can financially support this thing as well as give you some cool stuff we just upgraded our minecraft server that's the thing you get a part of if you are a $5 or more supporter, as well as our D&D campaign, our notes, shirts, stickers, free materials we got out there for you. It's amazing, as well as some shout outs. And let's start that out today with Tactics, Sky the Bear, Grant Dillon, Mr. Choff, Trace, Mega, Nick Hyman, Richard Scanlon, McChief, Climbing Spork, Mr. 1898, William Crawl, and Mr. Toot. Thank you all for the support. And uh, another way you can support us is just by checking out our store over on Etsy and as well as our merch stores, which are linked below. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We also have a Discord. We'd love to see you there. It's free to join. Alex and I are hanging out in there all the time, interacting with everyone, talking all kinds of gaming news, gaming stuff, playthroughs, art, whatever else. Come hang out. It's a lot of fun. And be sure to check us out on Twitch, which we're getting up and going. Uh, over at twitch.tv slash sourman70 that's s-o-u-r-m-a-n-7-0 as well as Derek's channel over at twitch.tv slash thebakerman247 that is thebakerman247 this podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify or most likely your favorite podcast listening platform if you haven't yet leave us a review let us know what you think feedback helps us out a lot and we'd love to hear from you again that's been our coverage of Undertale what did you think of it what did we miss what did we get right and what do you guys think of Undertale? It's one of those games that I know that can draw some blood in the gaming community of like who likes what is pacifist, the true one. Do you go genocide ending? And there's some speed runs out there that have either proved or disproved this. I mean, there's, if you go watch them, it's very interesting to see that, yes, it is faster to go that genocide route or the middle route. Um, but is it worth it? Let us know. So as always, I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Eric Baker. And this has been Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast.